Well, thank you uh, all for being here. Welcome at uh, Institute today for this uh, conversation about the translating relationship that we'll see through various angles, monetary policy, trade, and, uh, and politics. Um, before introducing my uh, three uh, colleagues and the three speakers uh, today, uh, let me start with a quote by the president uh, that he apparently made at the uh, last, uh, the recent G7 uh, uh, meeting when he said, the Germans are bad, very bad, and then promised to fight German car imports in the United States. And I think that's going to capture a lot of uh, the different perspective, you know, talking about monetary, the politics, the trade of, of the relationship under this, uh, this new uh, administration and the different challenges that both sides are going are gonna to face, uh, especially now that you know, the, uh, uh, you have a new uh, uh, French administration coming in, um, a potential re-election of Angela Merkel in a, in a few months, the Brexit negotiations <laughs> that have uh, just started, so a lot of economic issues on the continent, and obviously uh, uh, the challenges faced by uh, the, with the in the relationship with the new uh, the new president that has uh, promised a, a tougher stance on issues of uh, uh, especially of, uh, of trade. Um, to talk about this uh, today, uh, we have uh, three fellows at the Hudson Institute. Uh, to my right, uh, Peter Rao, who's a fellow here who focuses mostly on national security, international politics, with focus on a lot on the Middle East and also on uh, transatlantic affairs with expertise on, uh, on Germany and, uh, and Austria. And actually, a frequent guest now of, uh, of German TV uh, that flies in back and forth uh, to comment on transatlantic relations. Um, to my left, I have uh, Tom Dusterberg. Tom is a, is a senior fellow here at the, at the Heisen Institute with a uh, long and very distinguished career on issues related to trade. He was the executive director uh, to um, trade and, and manufacturing, actually, executive director of the Manufacturing in, in the Society in the 21st Century Program at the Aspen Institute. Um, you were the president and CEO of uh, Manufacturers Alliance uh, and uh, uh, also served, notably served, as a assistant secretary for international economic policy at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Uh, you were also, before that, the uh, uh, chief of staff to two members of, uh, of Congress. And all the way uh, to the left, Brendan, Brendan Brown, who is also a non-resident fellow at, uh, at Hudson Institute, is today the chief economic advisor to Mitsubishi Securities International in London. Um, you are also <coughs> an associate scholar at the Mises Institute, and you are a very distinguished uh, monetary economist uh, with expertise that includes uh, monetarism uh, in, in theory and practice, the Austrian school of monetary tradition, uh, and European monetary uh, integration, and we're going to discuss all of this with, with you uh, a bit later. Uh, maybe to, to set the stage, I talked a little bit about the various elections that Europeans and Americans have been going through and, and maybe how that could affect uh, the relationship. Uh, Peter, maybe could you start a little bit with this to, to you know, explain to us what do you think of the po political dynamics on, on both sides and how do you think it's going to affect uh, the transatlantic relation? Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for coming to Hudson Institute today. It's a great pleasure to speak. I know this is my home institute, but I don't take for granted that I'm invited to speak, so uh, it's nice to be here. Ben's right. In the four most powerful countries uh, in the West over the past year, we've had a whole slew of elections, starting, of course, with the referendum in Brexit, most recently the SNAP election in Great Britain. We've had in France a presidential followed by a parliamentary election. In the U.S., of course, the simultaneous congressional and presidential elections 
And in Germany, three very important regional elections that set the tone for this fall in September, the main contest, the election between, or the contest between Angela Merkel and Martin Schwartz uh, for the federal chancellery. I'd like to step back and maybe pull out, uh, as Ben's question alluded to, maybe three discernible trends that I think are perhaps a bit abstract, but in the end are very relevant for transatlantic relations and where we stand today. The first being that I think uh, the Western idea of uh, political Islam and our relationship with the Middle East is changing. And as a result within that, I think, our, 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 our public's expectations for our politics has also changed. The second being that I think um, we ignore this bubbling nationalism that exists within the West um, I think, or we patronize it at our peril. And the third point that I'll come to in a minute is that I think uh, uh, there's a shift in the distribution of power ongoing in Europe um, with the rise of Germany. So to come back to my, to my first point about uh, terrorism, immigration, political Islam in the Middle East, if we go back 15 or 16 years ago, uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, no one would have blamed President George W. Bush, despite being president during the worst man-made catastrophe in American history, for the attacks of 9-11, and for good reason. He had just been elected president, but more importantly, I think the American public recognized that we were entering a new security environment, and they gave him time to, for one, put in place new structures, like the Department of Homeland Security, new laws, like the Patriot Act. And so the president, uh, all through his reelection in 2004 and up through 2008, 9-11 uh, was really seen as one of his great moments in the aftermath and rallying uh, the American people together. Fast forward a few years, though, to the Atocha bombings in uh, March of 2004, and I think we see a slightly different outcome uh, in Madrid, where the government uh, immediately after, in the aftermath of, of the attack fingered ETSA, the Basque terrorist group, before eventually conceding that it was al-Qaeda that had attacked, um, uh, uh, had attacked Spain. And uh, the reason this is important is because, of course, the Spanish had joined, along with the Italians and the Poles and the British, the U.S. In, uh, in, in the war in Iraq. And so many Spaniards thought that uh, the Spanish participation in the war in Iraq painted a bright bullseye for al-Qaeda on Spain, and this is why they were attacked. And in fact, in the immediate aftermath, Zapatero ended up knocking off Rajoy unexpectedly and pulling uh, the Spanish out of uh, the war in Iraq. If you go to today, um, and this is a long lead into the point I'm making, but I think both of those dynamics no longer hold. For one, um, I think that... Uh, <coughs> um, I, I, I think that um, uh, the linkage between foreign policy decision-making in Europe and terrorism has been totally severed. And I think there are a few mainstream uh, politicians in Europe, um, and I think very few mainstream commentators in the U.S. who would argue anymore that it is, for example, German training of Kurds in KRG and Kurdistan Regional Government of Iraq, or, say, a Belgian foreign policy, or even British foreign policy, or French action in West Africa or North Africa that explain why uh, a Tunisian man drove his bus or his truck through a Christmas market in Berlin, or why the Brussels metro has been blown up, or why uh, there was an attack in Manchester, or why Paris has suffered through terrorism on multiple occasions. So I think that's, that's an important trend, and we have that here in the U.S. too, in the aftermath of San Bernardino and Orlando. Um, I think um, our understanding of terrorism has changed in that respect, and that's important for a reason I'll come to in a, in a moment. And secondly, as a subpoint uh, of this first area, I, I think that uh, the patience our public have for our, for our governments um, have started to erode. Here we are 15 years or 16 years after 9-11. Um, there's an entire generation now in university who only know the post-9-11 era. And yet, um, periodically, we have the Brennan Brigades illuminated in the colors of the Union Jack, for example, very touching, fitting, appropriate even. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure that, um, that we're content to be resigned to the new normal of periodic uh, terrorist attacks. And that finds expression in the rise of 
political movements and politicians who might not have a wide program as it pertains to healthcare reform or social security, but have very, very clearly articulated positions on things like immigration and issues um, like counterterrorism. So, for example, Gert Wilders almost knocks off Mark Rutte in the Netherlands um, without really having, or Norbert Hofer knocks off uh, almost Alexander Van der Bellen in Austria without having really the broad expanse of a policy uh, platform to run on. What does this mean for the transatlantic relationship? Well, it means that our politicians are all searching for answers about how, in a globalized era, democratic societies can protect themselves from the scourge of a radical millenarian ideology. And uh, it means that they're certainly not going to, even if the diplomatic qualities of Donald Trump are not endearing to them, uh, reduce in the slightest our counterterrorism or security cooperation and intelligence cooperation. In the end, I think if, if it, it, we'll see nothing but an intensification of close working between the U.S. and the Europeans on all of these questions. Secondly, and I'll do these a bit more briefly, um, I, I think we're drawing some of the long, wrong lessons out of uh, uh, some of the most recent election results uh, uh, in Europe um, for the transatlantic alliance. For example, in, in France, Emmanuel Macron won a great victory um, for liberals in defeating Marine Le Pen. But in the end, every commentator in Europe was clear that a Marine Le Pen victory meant the end of the European project as we know it, the end of the European Union as we know it. And yet something like 33% of French voters voted for her. If we pitted two candidates in the U.S. against each other, despite our polarization, where one called for, say, the succession of, of uh, Texas, well, Texas might be a bad example because there might be more sympathy for that in Texas, but the succession of any one state um, versus any other candidate, I would venture to say that something like 95% would vote against the successionist. So uh, this is important, I think, for the Brexit negotiations that are upcoming because I don't think necessarily that we're drawing the correct conclusions out of Theresa May's, I would still add, still victory. After all, the conservatives have something like a 56 uh, MP advantage over Labour, even though she did lose her majority. And in that sense, I think people are correct to say that she did not run uh, a, a good race. But the point being, um, my fear is that before the election, Theresa May uh, could say to the European Union, uh, a bad deal is, is, is no good. I'd rather have no deal than a bad deal. And now she's definitely weakened, but she can't really move off of her position because no Tory prime minister can move away from the position she already articulated at Lancaster House and the road she's already traveling down. So my fear is that we'll have um, a return to these, for example, 100 billion euro estimates coming out of the European Union, which I think any serious observer of European politics would say is never going to be the final price tag. Uh, the British will never agree to that. And uh, shenanigans like the leaking of the Jean-Claude Juncker, Theresa May dinner at number 10 that was meant to uh, embarrass the prime minister. Now in the aftermath of her being wounded, um, I'm worried that in the short run we'll have those who are for uh, an ever closer union perhaps seizing the ideological moment, even though I am optimistic that in the long run, when the real politicians ultimately will make the key decisions about Brexit, those who are themselves democratically accountable and understand the pressures Theresa May is under, Angela Merkel uh, being one, that will have a deal. And the other day we saw at the doorstep at the opening of the Brexit negotiations when four ministers were filing in several statements where the importance of the uh, economic and business connection between the Brits and, and the mainland and the continent was made clear. So I'm optimistic there. From an American perspective, as, as far as our topic goes today with the transatlantic alliance, uh, our goal, I think, should be to make clear that we expect a fair, clean, and equitable negotiation, even though it is a negotiation for the Europeans. On one point that uh, and Brendan and I were discussing this earlier that um, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I think both of us are less optimistic about is the prospect for a quick uh, and simple FTA between the U.S. and Britain, which seems to be um, uh, not the case at the moment. 
My third point um, is about the distribution of power in, Germ in, in Europe, specifically the rise of uh, Germany over the past <coughs> several years. In Germany, there really isn't the same sort of populist pressures that we see in Austria, in the Netherlands, in France, and elsewhere, in part because uh, a lot of these populist parties have really risen up uh, through sort of dual hats, the one hat being the immigration crisis, the other one being the European Union and the Euro. Well, Germany, only the immigration crisis is really relevant, and that seems to be with the recalibration and triangulation of Angela Merkel uh, moving towards her CSU alleys in Bavaria, more or less tabled for the moment. But uh, the Euro and the European Union, while in other places populations might writhe and chafe underneath it, in Germany it's a great plus because they've been able to export, I think, many of their own uh, domestic problems into the southern periphery of Europe. And so we have no AFD surge, even though initially with the immigration crisis it had done quite well. Now uh, they're fighting to even get into the Bundestag in the September elections. Um, so on the economic issues, I think Germany is positioned quite well, and it has absolute veto power over the key questions Europe faces, whether it be the Greek debt negotiations. We saw in the last couple of days Wolfgang Schäuble, the finance minister, basically has a veto uh, over the deal, um, over um, uh, a potential ality of euro bonds, a European finance minister. It's longstanding tradition for the French uh, president to visit Berlin after his election, but um, Emmanuel Macron came uh, not hat in hand, but with the argument that he would make reforms so that eventually he could get German assent to broader European reforms, precisely because uh, the Germans are actually the, the key player here. So in economics, the Germans are very powerful. And the question is, when does that economic power translate into foreign security policy? Where I would argue that the French are still the most important player in Europe and have used Europe uh, to kind of exponentially build themselves up. Perhaps the most tangible example of where this transition or this uh, dynamic is playing out is in uh, joint uh, military acquisitions, where the Germans, with some French support, are floating uh, potential acquisition projects where you have the beginnings, in very vague and hazy terms, of European um, defense force. Now, in part, this is reaction, to bring it back to our theme of transatlantic relations, to the United States and Donald Trump. I don't take that all that seriously because one of the reasons why the Europeans are potentially considering and commentators are writing op-eds on this and independent military capabilities because Donald Trump is demanding that the Europeans get to 2% of GDP on defense spending. But they're nowhere near 2% GDP, and if they were to set out on their own, they would have to spend uh, even more. But I do think um, uh, ideas like, for example, plussing up Frontex, which is the European naval capability, uh, in the Adriatic and in the Mediterranean and other joint ventures uh, can be healthy. But for, from the American perspective, we have to think through uh, what does it mean for the Europeans to begin to move together on, on security and defense, even if it's over the horizon. On the one hand, there are those who argue that this is great because, again, uh, the Europeans need to act where uh, America might not want to. They have their own interests. And uh, for those skeptical of Turkey and Turkey's role within NATO, this might be a way to evade the Turkish uh, veto within NATO. On the other hand, the fear is that, well, if you can't get, as I just said, 2% of GDP within NATO, who's to say that you'd be able to build a capable force outside of it? This will just lead to another glassy headquarters in Brussels, and we all know the last thing we need in Brussels is more bureaucrats masquerading as uh, military officers. So uh, I think that's, that's something that the Trump administration has to think through. That's something American policymakers have to think through. Uh, and so um, uh, those are three trend lines or three important dynamics that at least I think are relevant that one can pull out of these elections in the four most important countries in the West and, of course, also secondary elections in places like Austria and the Netherlands. Thanks. Thank you very much, Peter. I, um, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that you started maybe with some good news, actually, on the relation, especially on, on the common concern for the fight against terrorism. But I think it's very important to, to, uh, to realize that 
beyond the headlines and what we hear about uh, the, the state, the political state of the relationship between uh, both sides. I mean, you look at uh, every uh, every uh, uh, survey of public opinions, you know, the ones published by Pew Research, for example, on both sides of the Atlantic, you clearly see a, a, the common priority of every, every single country of the European Union and of the United States uh, is, is clearly the fight against terrorism and, and radical Islam. And, you, you know, it, it's always uh, important to remember that uh, the the cooperation on intelligence sharing on 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 data everything is is extremely strong. Um, NATO actually was just uh, just brought into the coalition to fight ISIS. Uh, the latest uh, NATO uh, summit that was actually something that um, the Trump administration pushed uh, for and that the Europeans went along with. So you know I think it's it's very important to to underline this. I would add also. Uh, the cooperation uh, in uh, deterring Russia is actually a, uh, much better. Here, again, beyond the headlines, the Trump administration committed to increasing the defense budget of the European Reassurance Initiative from 3.4 to $4.8 billion. The Obama administration had already quadrupled it, so the, uh, the, um, uh, the Trump administration is going further. So what's that, a quintuple net then from the Reds? <laughs> we have some economists. Ah, yes. We're going to address that. So let's not calculate. But, um, and, and, and just this week, actually, the European Union renewed uh, a bunch of sanctions against, uh, against Russia that are linked to uh, the annexation of Crimea. The, the administration here just did the same thing uh, uh, yesterday. So I think, you know, it's important to remember that when it comes to the security front, the, the transatlantic relation is actually strong beyond sometimes the, the acrimony that we can hear or some of the some of the media uh, coverage. But now let's turn to more complicated issues maybe, or at least their security issues are very complicated, but maybe uh, uh, where we can see some more, some more tension. Um, and, and maybe start with you, Tom. I mean, the, the, the president was elected uh, on a uh, uh, platform with a rhetoric that uh, was very critical of the U.S. Uh, trade, uh, traditional trade policy of uh, traditional trade agreements, including uh, TPP, the transatlantic uh, uh, trade partnership that had been negotiated these, these last few years. We, we actually see the same kind of uh, sentiments growing in Europe, uh, uh, especially coming from populist movement, but not, not only. I mean, if you, if you look at the, the European Parliament, you do also have a lot of uh, skepticism over, over TPP. I mean, where are we headed in this, uh, on this issue, and what, what can we expect in the next few years from, from this administration when it comes to trade relations? Okay, thanks, Ben. Um, it's nice to be with you all. Thanks for coming out here to the Hudson Institute. Um, as Ben's quote uh, about uh, German autos, automobiles uh, indicated, uh, his trip to Europe uh, only fanned the flames of uh, anti-trade rhetoric, which has been around for quite a long time in Europe. And the, uh, let's, let us say, inarticulate uh, and crude nature of, of the way Trump expressed this certainly uh, added to the problems of working with uh, European technocratic leaders. So I'm going to try to make the point uh, that uh, Peter Thiel made about uh, Trump a long time ago, which is to take him seriously, but not literally, in terms of his trade rhetoric. Um, I think he's serious, and he, the team that he has surrounded himself with is serious about actually trying to do something to address the trade, trade imbalances, but also, more importantly, to help uh, an electorate that has been neglected uh, or uh, um, is pr 
perceives itself to have been neglected by U.S. policy for a long time, that is the industrial sector and especially the industrial working class. Um, I've been a supporter of uh, transatlantic free trade areas since 1994 when I wrote my first article in favor of doing something. But to get this off the table, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, and the reason for that is that because of the rhetoric, uh, the electoral rhetoric and the follow-up from this administration, they're clearly not uh, interested in a, uh, a comprehensive, complicated, comprehensive agreement right at the moment. More interested in cleaning up some problems with NAFTA uh, and trying to do bilaterals. Um, Wilbur Ross did say pointedly, though, that they had this administration had considered TTIP and had not uh, chosen to formally uh, renounce it, so leaving a small door open. But again, I don't think it's going to happen um, because of, on our side uh, there's no enthusiasm. And we had been at this for three or four years, and my read was uh, Europe was in no hurry to get the thing done. Uh, it's very complicated. A lot of special interests got uh, involved in the game. I've been around U.S.-European relations long enough to remember all kinds of street demonstrations against the United States going back 40 years, the residual sort of anti-American sentiment. But even a few years ago in Germany, they were in the, the left was in the streets with banners against TTIP. And uh, as Ben mentioned, the parliament has uh, evinced a, a fair amount of skepticism. There's some hope with Macron and presumably Merkel back in power that we can uh, overcome some of these problems. But again, I think the uh, special interests um, and the complication of the situation rendered all but impossible in the near to medium term. So what I'm going to focus on is, um, since the United States and Europe are the, uh, the uh, parents, if you will, of the Bretton Woods system and have been at this for 50, 60, 70 years and are the pillars of the system, is there a way to repair the relationship with uh, Europe, accomplish some of the goals of the Trump administration that, um, without totally blowing up this relationship. And I'm also going to argue that we need to find ways to, small ways to build confidence between the two sides in order to at some point to move forward more aggressively with at least some elements of the TTIP. Um, so first, um, I, I think it's important to note that uh, in appealing to uh, lesser skilled workers and to trying to revive the industrial sector, uh, trade policy on its own can do, uh, I think, very little to accomplish that. Uh, I think this administration will, partly because of the expertise that is gathered in the trade agencies between uh, Bob Lighthizer and Wilbur Ross, the incoming uh, uh, Undersecretary for International Trade, they're all experienced trade lawyers, and we've already seen a fair number of anti-dumping countervailing duty enforcement cases. There are 161 of those on steel alone. Uh, we're going to see more. We have seen the Section 232, the famous Section 232 evoked. 
Uh, I'm a little unclear why they chose to do it on steel and aluminum rather than uh, semiconductors or something more directly related to uh, uh, national security, but so be it. They, they've done it. Um, there's also going to be some attention uh, paid to currency manipulation. Again, there, there are WTO provisions which allow that, and I'm going to return to that in a, in a minute. Second, I think that there's a better way to address the political needs domestically in this, this country, the domestic needs to try to do something to help the struggling, uh, unskilled, semi-skilled working class in the industrial sector, which has taken the brunt of the uh, uh, adjustment, especially since China entered the World Trade Organization. So the domestic policy, economic policy that the administration has announced, I think if enacted, and that's a big if, would go a long way to addressing the, the problems that, that uh, were so, so much of the focus of the election. So that's first tax reform. There's three elements to the tax reform uh, program that would be helpful in this regard. One, just simply uh, lowering the corporate tax rate to be competitive with the rest of the world. Two, going to a territorial system so that there's no double taxation of uh, U.S. firms profiting uh, profits that are held abroad. Uh, and third, going to immediate expensing of, of capital expenditures. Right now, the tax code favors um, producing outside of the country because of these provisions of the, of the tax code. Together, those three elements, either with or without a border adjustment tax, and I'm, I'm not going to focus on that today, would go a long way to reversing the incentives to produce abroad versus producing in the United States. Also, the programs to rebuild American infrastructure and to deregulate the economy uh, I think uh, inordinately would help the uh, the uh, working working Americans and the industrial sector. So um, if we could accomplish those things, and again, it's going to be a heavy lift, but that would go a long way to removing some of the pressure on purely trade policy to uh, achieve the political goals of this administration. Third, I think there. Uh, a number of ways where we can make a constructive effort to, to rebuild confidence between the two sides and among some of our other allies. Um, I, I've heard Wilbur Ross more than once um, uh, say that he'd be willing to take uh, individual elements of, that were part of the TTIP negotiation um, and try to reach further agreement and have some, quote-unquote, early harvest uh, of, of results. Uh, on the European side, I've heard the Italian economics minister, and I think I've heard um, uh, trade minister um, Malmström say that as well. I've, I've heard lots of experts on the European side uh, express an openness to that. So sectoral um, regulatory convergence, autos, chemicals, medical products, for instance, all could be areas where we could reach some sort of a, a agreement, I think. Um, completing the trade and services agreement, um, moving towards some sort of ag agreement on um, uh, new areas like digital commerce and data flows, might be other areas where we could try to develop some, some agreement. 
Wilbur Ross has said <clears throat> that he's using the uh, agreement, the 100 Days Agreement with China as a template. Uh, if it's a template, it was a fairly minor set of achievements, I, I, I must say. But uh, there are plenty of things that were part of the TTIP negotiation that we might, um, we might focus on. Again, in this regard, I think there is plenty of cooperation that is needed on the international front through the WTO to uh, combat the renewed vigor of Chinese industrial policy, uh, which has set as explicit goals to um, uh, become world competitive and dominant in areas now dominated by Europe and the United States, such as aerospace, uh, autos, medical products, uh, um, and others. Um, and the Chinese clearly are using every trick in the book, uh, including deploying heavily subsidized um, state-owned enterprises to in, in the service of this uh, this effort. Uh, there's plenty of room for transatlantic cooperation, cooperation with the Japanese, I think, through the WTO to try to combat this new aggressiveness on the um, uh, on the part of the Chinese. Other areas where you might work constructively together, energy cooperation, the, the Trump administration has chosen to unleash the uh, domestic United States energy industry. Europe could use some <clears throat> some uh, diversity in, in, in sourcing, especially its natural gas. Um, prices are low here in the United States, uh, are going to remain low. We've got pr plenty of natural gas we could export. We need to build the infrastructure for that. Ought to be some room for cooperation there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's we, we could work on some pioneering agreement on um, international data flows to, to facilitate the continued rapid development of this sector. Um, I would also note uh, Peter touched on uh, the Brexit talks. Uh, we, we always need to take remember that the basics of the transatlantic economic relations are not just cross-border trade flows, but they are um, established foreign direct in investment going both ways and the amount of uh, total sales of both American and European products uh, sourced at foreign affiliates in those areas dwarfs that of the cross-border trade flows. A lot of this is located in the UK. Uh, the American stuff is located in the UK, so it's very much in our interests to see a smooth, if possible, uh, Brexit negotiation so that the uh, over five or six hundred billion dollars worth of, of U.S. FDI in the U.K. is not cut off from the continent. Uh, and finally, I have <clears throat> what I would characterize as a speculative idea that I, I thought I would throw out and uh, we, can, we can discuss it. Um, Brendan will probably have some comments. Um, but I think monetary policy uh, through quantitative easing is no longer serving the interests uh, of, of uh, 
Europe or the United States in stimulating the economy. In fact, it's inflated asset prices and probably exacerbated the in income inequality problem, which may be another factor in the populist discontent uh, on both sides of the, uh, of the ocean. It also distorts currency prices, which are seen in some quarters of the United States as contributing to the trade deficits. Um, this is largely with China, but increasing attention is being paid to Germany by Fred Bergsten and others. Um, is it not worth considering some sort of a G20 uh, or other international uh, agreement based loosely on the Plaza Accord of 1985 to tackle the, this economic and political problem? This would be partly by moving to more fiscal stimulus, which is the forgotten part of the Plaza Accord, where Germany, Japan, and the United States all agreed to up the, uh, their, their domestic spending and their do domestic investment as a contribution to rebalancing the trade imbalances of, of that time. Um, the United States, um, Again, I emphasize that if Trump policy is actually translated into action through congressional uh, legislation, if it is moving already in a direction of fiscal stimulus, um, uh, paying attention to the trade deficit and fueling populist uh, rhetoric uh, are these imbalances, and as I mentioned earlier, I think domestic policy here, which is already moving in a stimulative direction, um, can contribute to toning down the, uh, the, um, the tensions. An international accord, um, which includes more fiscal stimulus by Germany, uh, Japan, and others, might be something to seriously consider for both economic and political reasons to reduce these tensions. Um, and we would all benefit from stronger growth, which I think such a policy might uh, engender. Thank you very much, Tom. That's actually an excellent transition for, uh, for Brandon. I mean, let me actually open with, uh, with Tom's conclusion. What, what is going to be the monetary dimension, you think, in the, in the relation between the United States and Europe? We know that the Europeans have embarked on, on quantitative easing a bit later than the United States. but. Uh, uh, they're still uh, uh, very involved in, uh, in this with the program of, you know, the, most notably the OMT program that is supported by European Central Bank. Uh, what is your view on this? How do you think the, the Trump administration is going to uh, react to that? Well, thank you very much for, for the question, and Thomas's lead-in is, is fantastic as a catalyst. But the overall point I, I want to start with is that the failure of the Trump administration to take their cue from Milton Friedman's book, Capitalism and Freedom, which starts with um, monetary reform, I think not only is very fateful for the US and global economic outlook, but I think it's quite fateful um, in a bad way for, the, for Europe and the relationship with, of the United States with Europe. And to answer your question directly, if the Trump administration had started with uh, undermining and, and, and absolutely criticizing continued QE outside the United States, that would have undermined or, or stripped um, Eurocentrism in um, France and Germany of the essential fuel of, 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 of the money printing machine from the ECB. So let me just expand on some of these ideas. Um, 
First of all, what, what, what has to be reformed when we look at the US and global um, and European monetary systems? Um, first and foremost, it's this 2% inflation target. You know, everywhere, Federal Reserve, ECB, Bank of Japan is following what's called the 2% inflation target. Where did this 2% inflation come from? You know, if you look at the Federal Reserve Act or all the acts about the Federal Reserve that's gone through Congress, the, the Fed is mandated to have price stability, not permanent inflation of 2%. The same is true of a Maastricht Treaty, mandated ECB to have price stability, not stable prices in the long run, not inflation of 2% per annum. Now, the, 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 the issue here is we're living in a period since the late 1990s, bred by the Internet, of rapid globalization, which brings prices and wages down in a good way. So if a central bank all over the world is committed to trying to get inflation at 2%, when in fact the natural rhythm of prices is downwards, what you end up with is terrific asset price inflation because these central banks are keeping interest rates way below the natural level at zero or negative, creating a lot of irrationality in asset markets. And um, the, we've already seen one cycle where, where this blows up in 2007 and 2008, and we're now well advanced in, in another cycle. So I, I would have suggested that if an, an incoming conservative administration in, in the United States had taken their cue from, from Friedman's best-selling book, they would have started off addressing this issue, of, um, which doesn't in fact need any legislation, doesn't come against, uh, up against any filibuster in the Senate, because the legislation already says price stability. 2%, uh, they only have to go back to what's actually in the statute book already. Um, and filling the, um, filling the empty chairs or soon-to-be empty chairs with, with um, governors of that view would have allowed the Trump administration to undertake monetary reform um, alongside the triple other agenda. We hear all the time about tax reform um, and health sector reform and um, infrastructure, but we hear nothing about the monetary reform, which in fact should precede all of those three in terms of re advancing the case of capitalism and freedom. Now, in, in terms of the European dimension, um, Eurocentrism, what I mean by um, the, the idea that um, European integration can proceed along the present lines, very much depends on the present monetary status quo, that we have an ECB which is having interest rates at negative levels, which is um, doing massive QE operations, suppresses all signs of credit weakness in the European dimension by buying masses of Italian bonds and um, keeping, the, keeping the spreads low. So everyone's living in this sort of uh, illusionism that somehow the Eurocentrism seems to work and no problems, but it's being underwritten by something which essentially is unstable at its origin and can't continue. Um, what I would also say here is that the, um, by, by ignoring the monetary issue, the Trump administration has actually very much weakened um, its position in negotiating with Europe and has also weakened its natural allies in France and Germany. Let's, let me expound on that. If we look at Europe, in Germany, um, hard money is 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 very much uh, loved by a large section of the electorate. They still think of the days of the glory of Deutsche Mark, when the Deutsche Mark was the number two currency in the world and hard money. So it's a, it's a, 
it's not, Germany is not uh, ever, ever likely to lean, as, as we can see it, in a nationalist direction, but if it's anything close to nationalism, it's for love of hard money and, and the Deutschmark and the previous glory and turning the euro into a Deutschmark would be something that would catch the imagination. Now, if the, if the Trump administration had, uh, instead of wading clumsily into criticizing Germany for manipulating the currency, had actually highlighted that the currency manipulation was in fact due to the monetary manipulations carried out by the ECB having negative interest rates and QE towards achieving a 2% inflation target, which was a nonsense anyhow, Trump administration would have found a lot of natural allies for that within the conservative movement in Germany, um, not to mention possibly within the FDP. And that would have been at the opposite end of the spectrum to Merkel, who all along has been a sort of soft money leader who, who actually is always in cahoots with um, Draghi towards, um, um, uh, although uh, to some extent disliking what he does in public, in private, um, realizing fully that Draghi is essential to the European en endeavor to keep the status quo going. And um, so if, so if, 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 if um, the key issue in the Trump um, approach to European currency manipulation and German currency manipulation had been focused on this monetary side and the U.S. had simultaneously been taking the lead in scrapping the 2% inflation target and that basis of monetary policy, they would have had, I, I, I believe, um, a host of natural allies in Germany. And, and Merkel may would not be sitting now in a position where she can pretty well dictate a continuation of a Eurocentrist type coalition. Um, I would even venture that in France, you know, if you think of France historically under the glory days of De Gaulle, um, who did De Gaulle have as his, as his economic advisor? It was Jacques Rueff. Jacques Rueff, a hard money person, believing in the gold standard. You know, there are still, and, 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 and I'm, of course, uh, Ben would have much more opinion on this than me, but there is the potential, I think, in the French system also, that, and, and France traditionally has been a, a promoter of global monetary reform from, you know, if you think back to the de Gaulle period or Pompidou, the, the international monetary reform has been a very much French, French theme. And if that French, if, if that could have been allied to a global monetary reform push by the United States to scrap the 2% inflation target, scrap negative interest rates, scrap all this interest rate manipulation and get back to a market determined system globally and in the United States, I think there would have been a, a lot of mileage to be made out of that. And, um, and it also would have curbed the likelihood in the future of trade war because what, frankly what, we, what Europe is doing is currency manipulation. To, 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 for the ECB still to be running negative interest rates and pumping up the money supply when the German economy is an absolute boom um, and Germany is the core of the European Union is, is, is blatant manipulation. It's a, it's a, it, and and, 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 and the, the Trump administration in pursuing that would have, would have been on a very, on a very strong um, wicket. Um, as, as it is, um, this continuing currency depreciation as led by the ECB and tolerated um, knowingly and willingly by Merkel and uh, allies um, is um, a source of um, accentuating the German trade imbalance, which um, is, is understandably 
creating uh, a lot of frictions. I just want to sort of conclude here before, you know, I'm very happy to discuss more of these points in the question session. Um, I would conclude in just looking at the way in which these sound money ideas or monetary reform ideas come into domestic politics. And I would just, I would make a, a dichotomy between what I think we're seeing in the US and UK on the one hand and what we're seeing in France and Germany on the other hand. It's always the case, I think, with the classical liberal money reformers, Milton Friedmanites, everything else, are, are never in their, on their own able to assemble a popular majority. Maybe one day they will, but it's not happened historically. Um, so what they have to do towards gaining power is enter into some sort of coalition. And what, what we're seeing at the moment in the United States and the UK is where the conservative parties Republicans in the case of the UK, uh, sorry, US and conservatives in the case of the UK, have entered into coalition with essentially a nationalist movement, um, whether it's, and which, whose hallmark is anti-immigration. In the case of the um, UK, it's anti-EU. So we have this coalition of poorer working class people voting for conservatives um, because of uh, support for anti-immigration nationalist type policies whether in the US or the UK. The problem with that sort of coalition is that so far the free market um, monetary reformers or what have you are, don't, are being totally squeezed out. They, I mean, their voices are, are not being heard to the extent they're being heard anywhere. Um, what we're seeing in Europe is in the case of um, France, um, that sort of coalition between conservatives and anti-immigration couldn't come about anyhow because the far right in France is so unacceptable. You know, the far right, the anti-immigration movement in France is of a totally different colour from the from the from the Brexit people in U, 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 UK or the Trump people in in, in the United States. Um, so, so, but the, um, the the second um, part here is that I, I, I believe that in in France. The, um, there's actually two forms of nationalism. There's the far-right nationalism, but there's also the Euro-nationalism. If you think back to Mitterrand and his embracing of Europe, he embraced Europe as being making France first in Europe. So there's the idea, there's a popular appeal of Europe in France, that it means that France is, is enlarged and becomes more powerful through the European dimension. So you have this coalition in France of the Euro-centrists. But of course, their great ambitions do depend on the money printing machine in, in, um, in Frankfurt. Because without that, all their plans for mutualization of debt and all these other aspects wouldn't get off the ground. I think in the case of, um, in the case of um, Germany, um, clearly, again, the far right is unacceptable. And we've seen the splintering and dis dissolution of the, of the AFD. But again, in a way, as long as we have this money printing press going and the lack of strength for the hard money faction within the CDU, then Merkel can pursue her enlargement ideas or her status quo defense, hiding from view of the German public what the true costs of this really are. And I'll just leave you with a thought that if Germany and France seriously think that the British um, loss um, once we leave the EU is, is 100 billion euros, 
God help us in terms of how France and Germany are going to soldier on supporting their dream of European integration without less 100 billion support from the UK um, every 10 years um, and without eventually the money printing press of, of Signor Draghi. Uh, uh, thanks a lot, Marilyn. Let me, let me just follow up a little bit on this and ask you a question, uh, and I might be wrong on this, but if you look at the politics of this in the Trump administration, uh, uh, confronting Europeans over uh, uh, currency manipulation, as you say, I mean, how, is, is, wouldn't there be a counter-argument that the Fed has actually been, if you look at the last six, seven years, much more expensive in QE, even though it doesn't do it anymore, but in QE than, than what the ECB has been doing with uh, the OMT program, and that historically, the ECB's mandates and practices have been much more uh, uh, conservative, monetarist to an extent, than the Fed, no? No, absolutely. I mean, when, it, when the Obama Fed started off with QE, it was a dollar devaluation policy. But as it's gone on, um, it's now it's, uh, the, 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 the currency offensive, as it were, is coming from Europe and, and, and um, Japan. But the point I'm making here is that if the Trump administration had forsworn this policy and said we're never going to go back to these QE and negative rates and we fundamentally reformed ourselves and we're, we're scrapping the 2% inflation target, that would have set an example to everybody else. And not more than setting an example, it would have given U.S. negotiators a very strong um, weapon to say that we're not doing it ourselves anymore. Why should we take it from you? But, but so are the Europeans just catching up on on U.S. currency manipulation Yeah, but I think uh, it's a fool's game to go on currency wars with begging your neighbor. You know, okay, for two years, the Europeans may get an advantage, but then there'll be a trade war further down the line. I mean, I think it, 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 my point is it would be much more sensible for the U.S. to have called a halt, but they can't call a halt with any degree of likelihood of success unless they're prepared to abandon those policies themselves. Uh, Tom, let me follow up a little bit with you, and, and let's talk uh, about Germany. I mean, Brendan, when it left about the, uh, the, the German trade uh, surplus, it's obviously been a very controversial issue, both in Europe and in the United States. I mean, the, the president has mentioned it many times. Does he have a point on this? I mean, the, the Germans usually agree, uh, argue that uh, they just embark on, on ambitious structural reforms 15 years ago, and they're um, and, and it's mostly linked to the competitiveness of the manufacturing industry. Uh, others would argue that these uh, that the structural imbalances within Europe have actually benefited. They've been the free riders of the imbalances in, in Europe. And as, as Brendan said, they're now benefiting from, from what the ECB is doing. I mean, who is right on this and, and, and what could be done to find a, a better balance? Well, I think the critics are absolutely right. I mean, the current account imbalance in Germany is 8 or 9 percent, approaching 9 percent of GDP. And it's always been a mystery to me why the Southern Europeans don't um, speak out more loudly about the issue. I, I'm starting to hear some rumblings, but uh, everybody is too polite and, you know, they have to support the, uh, the team project and team Europe. Um, the, uh, with regard to the United States, too, um, and the rest of the world, for that matter, um, you know, it, it is a problem. We have a, a fairly sizable bilateral trade deficit with, uh, with Germany. But the, I think the bigger issue is it, it's going to be difficult to get, uh, you know, just a currency uh, adjustment. Um, without Germany um, reflating somewhat through fiscal policy. I mean, that's the problem internally in Europe, I believe, which is 
the, the savings rate of the Germans is traditionally, ever since the, uh, what, the inflation of the 1920s, they've been petrified of accumulating debt. Um, so, I, you know, one can look at various things they could do. The infrastructure is slowly deteriorating in Germany as well. But that's going to be the key, I think, to achieving some rebalancing will be to get the uh, Germans to agree to spend a little bit more, you know, be it internally where they could buy <coughs> more, give more consuming power to the, to the Germans so they could buy Italian luxury goods, for instance. But infrastructure equipment from the United States or China as well. And, <coughs> excuse me. And, and Peter, you, you mentioned uh, obviously that uh, Germany, was not, Germany was not pulling its weight uh, on strategic issues, on security issues. I mean, I think it spent something like 1.2% of its GDP on, on defense. It famously voted against the, uh, the Libya intervention. Uh, it, 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 is, it is currently uh, mostly France and the United Kingdom, to a certain extent, Poland are, are the uh, the real actors of, uh, of defense and security at the, at the European level. So you know German politics very well. What, what is needed, you think, to bring the German leadership, or German public opinion for that matter, on board on, on all these issues, and, and, uh, and uh, both on, on security but also on, on economic issues? That's a great question. I think um, it's not an entirely serious debate, but more and more serious people are beginning to raise the question of a European nuclear deterrent and the German nuclear deterrent, in part because there's a question how reliable is a French deterrent if the Americans are no longer present. Um, is this something that Germany needs to invest in? And so on the one hand, as Ben just mentioned, they're at 1.2% of GDP, meaning they're not willing. Uh, and you hear now from Sigmar Gabriel, the German foreign minister, from Wiesler von der Leyen, the defense minister, beginning to redefine what a 2% threshold means as including development aid and so forth. So there is a great reluctance, um, in part explained by the fact that it's now campaigning season and they're being hammered from their left um, on this issue. But uh, there's a reluctance to get to 2%, and at the same time, they're interested in, or there are at least very vague discussions about what it would mean to have a nuclear deterrent. What sort of signal does that send to Eastern Europeans when you're saying, we want a nuclear deterrent, but we're not going to invest in our military, it essentially means that you're not really willing to get into a competitive game with the Russians in Eastern Europe. Everything up to the German border is more or less um, uh, is more or less something that uh, is going to be uh, difficult to, to 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 competitively engage in because we won't have the capabilities or resources. That's one argument. The other argument, which German officials will make, and it's quite persuasive as well, is that Germans are flying missions in the Baltics. The Germans, for the first time since World War II, have troops stationed as part of this NATO rotational force in Eastern Europe uh, in the Baltic states. Germans continue um, at the official level to very clearly state that um, the red lines around NATO remain red, even if recent polls, you mentioned one poll earlier, there's another Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty poll of late that shows that the German population is least interested in defending Article 5 if the Russians are going to move into the Baltics of all the NATO uh, member states. But the government remains relatively committed to this and relatively strong. Um, in the end, this all gets back to political will. How does one generate political will without the, the terrible scenario of an increase in that perception because of a threat or another? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if I have the answer to that. I do think that one gets the feeling in Berlin um, 
that it really is sort of on the front lines of the Western competition between the United States and Russia. One gets the feeling that uh, that German politics is seized by, in many ways, this question of how to how to treat the Russians. There's a great there's a great respect and nostalgia um, for Russia as a civilization, as a people. Um, it's a respect and nostalgia that isn't accorded to um, to uh, to say Arabs um, or to say maybe less so to 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 Turkish leadership. Um, so uh, there, there's something about the German and uh, Russian relationship as sort of two great civilizations. There's Pushkin, there's great literature, there's great culture uh, coming out of Russia. Um, and maybe that explains some of the fondness, um, uh, especially amongst the center left. Um, I think, and I'm swinging way off topic at this point, but nonetheless, I'll continue. I think that... Um, um, the German left has always had kind of a traditional fondness or Beschwichtigungspolitik, the Germans will call it sort of an Ostpolitik of the Brat for the Russians a fondness. But also on the German right now, there's this kind of unique dynamic in the CSU in Bavaria, West Seho for the minister president, um, uh, runs a, a semi-pro-Russian uh, line. And of course, the AFD, despite what Brendan said and them being virtually annihilated at the moment, uh, they too uh, have uh, some attraction uh, for the Russians. I think this is part of Vladimir Putin's strategy. On the one hand, he snarls at the Europeans. He invades Ukraine. He causes a great deal of problems. But on the other hand, he reaches his hand across and says, in the wake of decadent liberalism and the onslaught of political Islam, I'm a traditionalist. And I think some Germans find that uh, somewhat attractive. A layer on top of this is the natural German tendency to avoid conflict ever since 1945. Um, and... Um, uh, especially ever since uh, reunification 25 years ago. So political will, um, but I, I don't see it on the horizon a real huge switch in, in German strategy. But the other point I would make real quick is that aside from the rotations in, in the Baltic states, there are also, as I said at the outset, training Kurds and KRG, which is a big deal for the Germans. Yeah, absolutely. Before opening to uh, the audience, maybe just uh, one last question for, for Brendan. You, you're uh, based in London. I mean, maybe we, we've broached on that a little bit in all the three free talks, but let's maybe get your impression on, on, um, on Brexit and, you know, both on what you think the recent uh, uh, British election means for the UK uh, negotiations position, what kind of uh, Brexit it's going to, uh, to try to negotiate with the, with the European Union, and maybe also, if, if any, do you think there is a role for, uh, for the United States uh, in these talks? Um, as far as the election result goes, um, it weakens the negotiating position of the UK in the Brussels and Berlin and Paris, will see the present situation as meaning it's less likely that May can walk out of a room and um, uh, use theatrical tactics, because May now has to demonstrate to everybody in Parliament that she's doing everything possible to get an amicable deal, or she may risk some loss of confidence in early elections. On the other hand, May's um, real possibility of, of, of any backstepping here is very small because what the election results show is that without the support of the what I call the nationalist um, anti-EU support from the lower income people she, the Conservatives would have suffered a landslide defeat so she really can't slide back very much at all um, so in this situation of really nothing's much changed, but the, Euro the France and Germany and Brussels will interpret it as a way to give less 
obviously the outcome is not is going to be more more difficult than before. And the other point, just following on from Peter, I think in terms of you know the the, the pro Brexit always was predicated on that Britain would make trade deals with the United States and a range of other countries after that, and deregulate its economy and cut taxes and do much better than a highly regulated, high tax European continent. That's all looking much less plausible now. And, and what about the United States? I mean, so you, you just mentioned a trade deal. But well, sorry, general, I mean, you think the U.S. can have a role diplomatically in, in these talks? Uh, you know, we, we, we've seen the, the president has been uh, fairly positive on, on Brexit. He's built a relationship with Theresa May. I mean, do you think that can translate into the, the talks? I think, I think historically you're absolutely right. U.S. has played a key role in, in as um, bringing, bringing these settlements together in Europe. Um, but in the present circumstance, I think that role of the United States is probably going to happen at a much later point. You know, I can see in the context of an eventual U.S.-European trade war, um, a much worse geopolitical situation possibly, that there may be an outreach suddenly to try a new rapprochement between Europe and the United States, and part of that process um, of, of, of re-establishing a relationship May, may be to bring Britain into the, those talks and, and say, well, you, if, we, if you want to get back to free trade and get rid of it or the, you know, end the trade war, it also means um, coming to an agreement with the UK that's reasonable. That's possible, but I don't see it happening in the short run. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, let's, uh, let's open for a question of the audience. Um, let's start from left to right, I guess. Hi, uh, Carl Galvin. My question is uh, concerning the prospects for a new Bretton Woods kind of arrangement and uh, pointing to gold as the ultimate honest unit of account, which the world seems to yearn for. Historically, the limitation was the velocity at which gold coin money could circulate, which we've overcome that now with wireless uh, abilities to, uh, for example, Apple, Apple Pay could be a private label gold monetary unit that could circulate, you know, an ounce of gold could stay in a vault and its uh, ownership be exchanged thousands of times a day. So the volume of gold available is no longer a limitation. But geopolitically, the Bretton Woods really failed because it was not geopolitically neutral. It was based in the U.S. I look to Iceland, Reykjavik, and imagine the idea of every nation uh, or currency represent, representative of gathering in uh, Reykjavik daily and uh, holding one another accountable to not dumping excess inflated currency into each other's economies by reconciling transactions in gold and putting gold back into circulation. Um, a domain reference, endofthefed.info, the two most crucial things to read, Roger Sherman, 1752, a caveat against injustice or an inquiry into the evils of a fluctuating medium of exchange. And uh, Andrew Jackson, 1837, his farewell address, he spoke eloquently of, of how the inflating of credit through IOUs brought into existence uh, impoverishes those who labor and it enriches, enriches the political, corporate, and financial classes in their schemes. So uh, restoring an honest unit of account through a new Bretton Woods, uh, based in Reykjavik of all places. I mean, the, the, the only historical point I would add to that is that uh, my, my own view is that the key factor in the failure of Bretton Woods which was essentially a dollar standard, not a gold standard, was the U.S. failing to keep to a stable monetary um, uh, outcomes so that you had, instead of uh, 
stable or even falling prices through the period of rapid productivity growth of the 1960s, you had the U.S. inflating away at two, three, four percent. So that that's what broke the system, and that's what. Eventually, but that was at the end. I mean, the, the end of the Bretton Woods system came when essentially Germany floated away. And why did Germany float away? Because they were no longer prepared to accept inflating at the US rate. Thank you. Fanny Delaval, Embassy of France. Um, what are some of the lessons that uh, the European Union could learn from US? the U.S. experiment at integration and federalism, uh, acknowledging that these are very different contexts, what um, has worked or hasn't worked in the U.S. Um, that could be applied to the EU at this stage? Thank you. Um, well, I think that's it's difficult to make that comparison only because the U.S. did have a fairly strong and robust national identity um, from the start, which I'm, I'm not sure the Euro Europeans have the same sense of identity. They have some of the, the makings of what is kind of a federal system and an, an anthem, the license plates, um, common institutions. But um, I still think that the locus of decision-making in Europe um, and rests at the, at, at the national level. And related to that, and maybe this is the lesson that makes sense, I think the United States was very cautious to uh, maintain its federal character. Today, we don't see it as much anymore because so much power has migrated to Washington. But um, our governors are still powerful, but they were very powerful early on. I mean, uh, you could see the sense of identity-based kind of state thinking in the early republic all the way up through and past the Civil War. I mean, General Lee famously said, as Virginia goes, so go I. Um, uh, and I think the, the, the lesson there is that um, um, it was a slow process of coming together in which um, uh, at times there were forcing mechanisms through, for example, the Constitution. But by and large, it was a slow and organic process, um, maybe something akin to, uh, to a form of sort of multi-speed Europe that allows countries to kind of uh, progress. At least that would be my policy uh, recommendation or ideas, I think, of the European Union today. Um, but I do think it's a tough comparison just for that reason. Well, I would just comment that um, in, in the United States, we, we've, until very recent years, uh, pretty much insisted on having a common culture. We have a common language. We, um, it would be inconceivable in France or Germany where you call up a help desk at a company for the product that you have that don't work and you can choose between French and English or, and it's, it's becoming more common here. But our entire history where we've integrated a fair number of uh, disparate groups reasonably successfully has been, I think, because we've maintained a certain commonality of culture. We're also a much more mobile society. We can, workers traditionally have moved around quite a bit and they knew what to expect in, in terms of culture. The, the language was more or less the same everywhere. So I, I would emphasize that culture in, in Europe is, 
clung tenaciously for thousands of years to um, individual, regional, and eventually formed, uh, expressed in nation states, uh, those sorts of differences, and as far as I can tell, still does. I don't, I don't really have any. Yeah. No, and, and actually adding to this, I mean, I, I agree with, with both these comments, I think, especially when you look at the currency area to make it <coughs> optimal, you do need a, a free flow of labor, which technically on paper you have in, in Europe. I mean, it's not barred within the Schengen area, within the Eurozone, but um, it, it is much easier culturally for someone from North Dakota to move to California than it is for a Lithuanian to move to, to, to Germany because of the cultural and language barrier. And you, you, you need this when you have economic discrepancies between two regions. I mean, normally, you know, people progressively move move naturally to compensate that. And the same thing, I think there are some things that could be, that could be fixed at uh, the Eurozone level, like, uh, you know, having better uh, a mechanism for financial transfers between countries that are in, in, uh, in um, uh, surplus to countries that are in, the, in deficit, which, which is the case in the United States. But here, again, you have a cultural factor that in the United States, I think when, when states like Louisiana or Florida gets, get bailed out, no one even notices. It's not something that is so controversial politically, yet it is in, in Europe because certainly you have national sentiments that reemerge like we've seen in the last few years. I mean, if you I, I, was, I was looking at a um, very recent survey of public opinions in Europe on how Europeans think about each other yesterday. And uh, if you look at Angela Merkel, she is quite popular all over Europe, except in Greece, where 90% of the Greeks have a negative opinion of Angela Merkel, which is understandable because when you're in a situation of crisis, the national uh, sentiments uh, reemerge. We had a question here. Thank you. I had a question for Brendan as the resident monetary expert. Given the consistent failures of the Federal Reserve, of the ECB, of the BOJ, in use of quantitative easing and how none of this has seemed to work over the course of, what, a decade now, decade or two, is there a need for central banks? Is there a need for a Federal Reserve, or would we be better off simply being done with them? Um. I wish what you were saying was, was true in the sense of people accepting the evident failure. But if you go a few kilometers or less down the road, I'm not so good on Washington geography, and listen to Bernanke, he's still telling you what a great success QE is. And um, you know, that Yellen's saying the same thing. So um, I, I think was, uh, the, the first point I would make here is that who can possibly judge for s success or not of a policy until one whole cycle is over? And if you think, like I do, that the cycle's going to end very badly with, a, with some sort of crash or um, asset price deflation, um, clearly um, what they're saying halfway through is not going to be true at the end. In addition to that, even taking Bernanke on his own terms, I mean, the reason for QE originally was that this was going to make it a stronger than usual recovery after a great recession. In fact, it's been the slowest years of expansion there's ever been after a great recession. But in the, you're, and coming on for the second part, do we need central banks? Um, if we're not on a metallic standard, um, somebody has to manage the growth of a monetary base. Now, could, you could recreate an institute of monetary institute which follows some sort of constitutional rule, and you do it with central bank. That may be a very good idea. Um, and um, that, 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 that would be much less subject to... 
um, all the various imperfections we've seen. But I, you know, as, as, as time goes on, I, I'm willing to accept that ultimately, if we're not in a metallic standard, the, the, any sort of constitutional rule, we're in a world of humans, has to be monitored by ultimately a political process. So whether you call it Federal Reserve or Monetary Institute doesn't really make so much difference, but, I, but, but the rules of the game certainly have to be changed. Uh, my name is Mark Plotkin. Um, to Mr. Uh, Dusterberg, um, in the name of journalistic transparency, first of all, a prosaic question. Who were you, the, who were the two members of Congress, this always galls me, when they're not specific, uh, that you were the chief of staff for? Uh, one, Chris Cox. Two, Dan Quayle. Okay, thank you. Um, in terms of um, investment in this country, you talked about territorial uh, taxation. Would you explain what that is? And the criticism is that all these major corporations have hundreds of billions, I guess billions, of dollars socked away in Europe. Uh, because, And if they didn't, uh, they would invest it in America, and that would produce more jobs and more jobs, uh, industrial jobs or technical jobs or whatever you have it, there would be job expansion. Uh, do you think that linkage is true? And second, will you explain um, what territorial taxation actually is, how it would actually work in principle, in practice? Um, well, I'll give, you, I'll give you the simplified version. I'd say that um, right now the United States uh, you know, General Motors um, sells cars in Europe. They get taxed. Uh, the federal uh, corporate tax on everything they sell in Europe as well as in the United States. Uh, Daimler makes cars in Germany, sends them over here. Uh, they, they pay the American tax only on what they, um, uh, they sell in the United States. They're tax rate is a little bit lower than ours. Um, you can see, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to digress a little bit here. Um, the, uh, so, so the general principle is you, you pay tax only um, where you sell um, the goods instead. Of, in the United States, we, we get taxed, uh, General Motors gets taxed here on everything they sell abroad. Daimler does not. They just get taxed on the foreign portion. Um, you can see in places like the, the or in sectors like the pharmaceutical sector where, you know, you do research and you get basically for a short period of time, 10 or 12 years, you get monopoly profits. You make a lot of money if you're successful at it. So uh, we sell, and we're one of the leaders in developing new products in, in, in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so uh, we sell stuff in Europe and get taxed at the full American rate, um, unless you keep it abroad where you only get taxed on the European profits when you, when you bring it back. If you equalized rates, which is you know the basic point I was trying to make, get our corporate rate down to, I mean, the Irish rate is what, 15% or something like that, 12%. Um, so it makes sense for Pfizer, Apple to keep money abroad. It's just if, if their goal is simply to reward the shareholders, that's how they do it. 
Whereas if you go to a territorial system, uh, th that delta, that difference between what you pay on foreign profits and what you pay uh, if you're an American company on, on everything is eliminated. And so the, the incentive to produce outside the country is simply not there anymore. Hopefully, hopefully they would bring the money back in. They spend it hiring more people. Some of them would. Some of them would reward. They purchase stock by them. They could do that too. Do you think there would be an appreciable increase in employing Americans in Europe? Well, I do. And, and the answer is going to be longer than just tax policy because I think, in short, that. The uh, U.S. goods producing sector has become more competitive over the last 25 years because they've been forced to by competition from China, you know, Mexico for that matter. So the differentials between the cost of producing domestically versus internationally have come back. And there's been a recognition on the part of com American companies that it's just tough doing business out outside of the country, especially in a place like China, which is becoming less and less friendly towards foreign uh, presence in their country. So, you, you know, the, uh, and you can see companies try to quantify those non-monetary uh, non costs, the political costs, if you will. So you have this convergence of actual production costs plus you know, for lack of a more elegant term, the hassle factor of, of dealing with, you know, bureaucracies, cut off of electricity, bureaucratic has harassment abroad. So I think a lot of companies would come back and see it just makes a lot more sense. And, I mean, a lot of especially American manufacturing companies are, if you will, uh, patriotic in the sense They've been pillars of local communities for a hundred years. Uh, they're dependent on by their local communities. They want to reward their local communities. So my sense is that it would a lot of it would come back. Not all of it. A lot of it would go to shareholders, but there would be more production here. So I'm sorry to be so long in answering. My name's Lock Kuhn. <clears throat> I had uh, two quick questions uh, that maybe um, I hadn't heard addressed at all. Uh, one is a, a longtime friend of mine is an advisor to the UK government on the Bre uh, Brexit negotiation, and among his optimism, he feels that the Commonwealth uh, uh, countries represent an ace in the hole for them, and that that will could rapidly um, build their position. Uh, and therefore have uh, Europe uh, come begging to them. I'll make a comment on that, if, if you will. Secondly, uh, another issue of international trade is that China uh, tends to um, disregard much of the U.S. intellectual property, and those things are in um, aerospace and GPS and weather uh, services and, and a whole medical uh, uh, devices and entertainment and others that I saw a study about five years ago indicating that there was, I think, some $300 billion of underpaid intellectual property to the United States from China, which would virtually wipe out the difference. 
So then, if that's true, well, it's still true, um, then the bilateral um, uh, bounce of trade with Germany and, and others could be bounced out among different countries. And I wonder about that aspect and whether China has come back in to compliance with intellectual property. Brendan, you start, want to start maybe with how Britain can benefit from its relationship with the Commonwealth post-Brexit? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly Australia and um, Canada um, and, of course, some, uh, India uh, are mentioned as some of the candidate countries with which UK would be doing free trade deals, um, having, having left the EU. Um, I don't know how much... I, I often think in terms of a negotiating power... I still think the number one deal is the U.S. deal, um, and was not just because of the size of trade between the countries, but also because of, in many ways, the natural fit of U.S. farmers and uh, opening, uh, coming into the U.K. market and U.K. export of financial services. And there's was, was a, was a lot that um, U.K. and, I think, U.S. would gain from such a deal, which would be many times larger in aggregate from what we're thinking, I think, in, in terms of those three countries. Um, but I, th I think in terms of the um, negotiating power, if the idea of opening free trade deals is to put pressure ultimately on Germany and the EU countries to come back with a better deal because they're losing market share, I, I think the, 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 the strongest deal in that respect is probably UK doing a deal with Japan. You know, it's nothing like UK taking in Japanese automobiles free of tariff to worry the US automobile makers. You know, so, so yes, I mean, Canada and Australia and uh, India are, are useful, but I don't think they're the most strategically levered or the biggest deals to be made. So on um, the China question and trade, they're, they're um, traditional violators of intellectual property rights uh, pretty broadly. Things may be marginally better since they joined the World Trade Organization, but there's still a problem. Some of it is overt, some of it's sort of covert. There, there are remedies. I mean, they violate their obligations under the World Trade Organization. We should, um, we have tried, and we need to try harder, and we need to cooperate with some of our other like-minded trading partners in Europe, especially, but also Japan, Korea, Taiwan to enforce our rights under the World Trade Organization. Or if that doesn't appear to be successful, and this is something that Trump um, harumphed about and for, you know, and with some justification, it hasn't really worked. You can drag things out in the World Trade Organization forever. You can hide, you can hide it. Um, so Trump's ideas slap a, you know, big tariff on him. I hope we don't get to that point, but it takes both sides to cooperate to solve the problem, and it is a problem. Um, I think we'll wrap up uh, here. Uh, please join me in, in thanking our, our three speakers. I think there was a very rich and very uh, diverse conversation. And uh, thank you, all of you, for, uh, for joining us.